where Jason left off last week in Acts chapter 10. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and go there. We're going to read some of verse 23 when we get together, and I'm just going to pray for us as we open up the scriptures uh, that God will speak to us. And so let me pray. Father God, uh, we come into your presence, and one, just acknowledge that you're here. We invite you in. We invite you to this meeting. We want you to be uh, not just mentioned in it, but it was central to it, and that you would be the one that would do whatever work you're going to do as we open up the scriptures. I pray that you would touch us, change us, help us to see you, help us to see ourselves, help us to see truth from the text. Uh, whatever it is you desire to do in these moments, God, we just submit to you, and uh, we desire to do the things you've said, to die to ourselves, to take up our crosses, to follow you, to be your followers. I know there are some here that may be skeptics, and God, I pray that you'd answer their questions, do whatever you need to do, and just overwhelm us with your glory today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me start by just asking you a question. Why are you here? And I don't mean like you weren't on vacation this week, and so you decided to come to church, or this is your church, or somebody invited you, you saw an ad, whatever it is. Uh, I'm asking you, why are you on earth? Not just why are you here at church. So why are you here? That's a question that philosophers call a worldview question, meaning the way that you answer that question will shape how you see everything else in the world. So why are you here? Oftentimes we don't think about that question unless there's some major thing happening in our lives, and so we want to think about it and wrestle with it today. Sometimes we'll think about that. Maybe you're about to make a career change, and so you start asking your question, you know, what is, this, is this why I'm supposed to be here on earth? What am I doing? Or you get married, or you're picking a major, or sometimes people have those near-death experiences. I had a friend who, uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, was driving through Briar Creek neighborhood right across the street here down the main street, which I assume is a 25-mile-an-hour speed limit, and he's doing his morning routine. Six o'clock in the morning, there's hardly anybody out, some joggers and different people out, but hardly anybody on the road. And he's cruising through the neighborhood, and this 16, 18-year-old kid came flying into the neighborhood about 65 miles an hour, turned his car, lost control of it, it started to flip into the air. My friend said he didn't see the car until it was coming at him. And the only thought he had, because the time that was there was, this is it. And he turned and leaned over the, the panel in the middle of his car, and that car landed right on top of him. And it broke his collarbone and bruised some of his ribs. He ended up getting about 18 stitches, but for the most part, uh, just some scrapes and bruises. Broken collarbone, serious. But he walked away. He actually got out of the car that moment and was able to go back and see if that teenager was okay. And I can't remember if it was that later that day or if it was the next day, but I remember when we talked, the obvious thing for me to say to him is, well, you're still here for a reason, right? I mean, I mean if you're in a situation where you could have died, and maybe even from a physical standpoint, should have died, then the obvious thought after that is, why am I here? There's a reason, but the question is why. And what happens with many of us is we don't have those near-death experiences on a daily basis. We live the daily grind. We run our errands. We do our routines, whether it's running to the coffee shop, picking up toys for kids, doing your job, exercising, whatever your routine is. And we just don't think about these things. But the truth is, the very fact that you have breath is a gift from God. And the question is, why do you have it? Why are you here? And that's the question we're going to wrestle with today because it's a question that's asked in our text. In Acts chapter 10, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 10. I'll start reading in the very first part of verse 23 uh, where Jason left off last week. But for those of you who are maybe new or, or haven't been around, uh, just a reminder what we're doing in this series is called Movement. And we're talking about the book of Acts, which was God's movement. Or it's really the history of the church, which was a movement of God. See, the church was never meant to be just a social organization where, or an organization where people get together and have friends. Um, it wasn't supposed to be just a place that you went on Sunday morning because that's what you've always done. It's always been God's plan that it's a movement of his to reach the world for Jesus Christ, and it's plan A, and there's no plan B. 
Now, sometimes we've made it into other things, but as we've been going through this, this book, we've seen what God's plan is and how he wants to use the church and how people interact with one another and live out one another and care for one another, all with the purpose of trying to reach a world for Jesus Christ. And that's what we've seen so far, but so far we're about six years in, and it's still primarily a Jewish movement. Because God's given them this commission to reach the nations, but at the same time, they've got these social barriers that make it basically impossible to fulfill that commission, that commandment that they've been given. And so what God's been doing in the last several weeks we've been looking at has been breaking down those barriers. And you saw last week, as Pastor Jason shared with you, the vision that Cornelius had, who's a Roman centurion, a Gentile man. He's supposed to send for Peter, who's in a town in Joppa. It's about 35 miles away from where he lives in Caesarea. And at the same time, Peter has this vision. Remember that vision? You know, buzzards and snakes come down on a big sheet. Jason told you it's okay to eat sauerkraut now. It's okay. They eat these things. But it was about more than just food, wasn't it? It was about breaking down those barriers between Jew and Gentile, these racial barriers that were there. And what ends up happening is we see that Peter goes through in this passage of Scripture we're about to read, and he's doing exactly what God wants him to do. But then he asks the question, why am I here? Look at it with me. We'll start reading in verse 23. These three guys show up at the house where Peter was staying, Tanner's house, which had been another unclean person. So then Peter invited the men into the house, Gentile people, two servants of Cornelius and a soldier. They invited him in to be his guests, and so already the barriers are starting to fall down. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. He's worshiping Peter. Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. I'm just part of creation. It's like all those creatures he saw on that sheet. I'm a creature. You're supposed to worship the creator. Get up. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for you, I came without raising any objection But can I ask a question? May I ask why you sent for me? Why am I here? Then verse 30, Cornelius answers. Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me. This is the third time we've seen this vision since Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. It's being repeated over and over and over again. It's not about Cornelius. It's not about Peter. It's about God. God's divine leading was there. And he said, Cornelius... God has heard your prayer. The answer here is God, Peter. Why are you here? God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a job for Simon, who's called Peter. He's part of the story, but he's not the main character. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So here we have... In this passage of scripture, Peter, who's doing exactly what God wants him to do. God's been preparing him since Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans, and he ends up, God moves him, he's preparing him with placement, he brings him to Joppa, to this place where he's staying in a tanner's house, who somebody would be ceremonially unclean to the Jews, and so he's already breaking down those barriers. And then he gives him this vision, and he's trying to figure out the vision. You can go back and read the passage from last week. Peter's still confused about what's happening there. In Acts chapter uh, 10, verse 17, he's trying to figure it out, and it's like he's figuring it out on this journey. These three guys show up at his house and the Holy Spirit prompts him that he's supposed to let these guys in, so he does. And then he goes with these guys to Cornelius' house and here he is and he believes he's exactly where God wants him to be, but he doesn't know why. Can I ask why you sent for me? 
Why am I here? And then Cornelius answers in verses 30 through 33. Let me summarize verses 30 through 33. God, this isn't about you, Peter. It's not about me, Cornelius. This is God's story, and it's ultimately about God's glory. That's why we're here. We're going to ask the question, why am I here? We're here for the glory of God. Ultimately, the reason why we're here is for God's glory. So let me say it another way. It's not about you. It's not about me. And that's not fun news to hear, to be real candid, because most of us, if we're honest with how we live our lives, our lives revolve around us. And we might not think we're, you know, we've seen egomaniacs. We not, might not think we're an egomaniac, but most of our lives, we've, the things we're doing, whether it's with our kids, we're trying to control our environment to make ourselves happy so we don't get upset. We're trying to control the situation at work to meet our needs. We want our marriage to work out so that I can be happy. It all ultimately revolves around us. And so it's kind of a jarring truth to be told. It's not about you. Because our whole lives, we make it about us. I saw with our kids, I was talking to my wife about this this morning. Uh, earlier this week, I was reading a bedtime story. for. We have four little girls at our house. And so it's, a, it's wonderful, lots of hair and screaming and all that other kind of stuff. And and love being with those girls. But I was reading a bedtime story with them. They get calm when I read them a story, believe it or not. It's like amazing. And so I, I read them this story, and they're all calmed down. It's about to be bedtime. And I say, all right, do your bedtime routine. And so they all go to brush their teeth and put on their jammies and do this stuff. Except for one of them stayed in the room. She wanted to show me a new trick that she had. And so she does this cartwheel, and she lands it. It's like amazing. It's not just like flopping around on the ground. And so I see it, and I'm so impressed. I'm like, I didn't know you could do I'm so proud. I'm impressed. I start heaping praise on her, and it was just like spontaneous at the moment. Down to the corner of my eye, I saw that one of the sisters was peeking through the crack in the door. And then she came running in. And she was like, watch this, daddy. And she tries to do a handstand, you know, falls on her head. She's, watch this. She's flopping around, trying to do cartwheels and handstands and somersaults. And it's all, it's not working, okay? But she's just, see this, notice this. And in other words, watch me, have affection for me. He prays on me, care about me. And we don't grow out of that, do we? We still want that. You see it, and we can make it less personal and put it on a macro scale. Just think about how many reality television shows there are out there. I had that, that thought as I was working on the message this week, and, and I Googled it to see, and I printed off. I found a website that had a list of all the reality television shows. I printed it off. There's over 20 pages here. You can see the font size. It's not real big. Um, a bunch of them are just start with American, by the way. <laughs> um, but there, there are all these different shows on here where people get their moments of fame. Isn't it said you get like 15 minutes of fame? Obviously, American Idol, you've heard of. America's Got Talent, which if you actually watch the show, will make you question the title. Um, toddlers and tiaras, that'll make you cautious for our next generation. A um, bunch of shows about rehabs, races, Amazing Race 1 through 22 uh, is on here. Um, airplane repo? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know there was a world of such a thing. And um, Things about disorders, things about gifting. So it doesn't matter if it's a problem or if it's a benefit. You can be incredibly physically able and they'll make a show, a game show for you to watch, or you could be needing to lose a bunch of weight and they'll make a show for you. There are a lot of dance shows you've probably heard of So You Think You Can Dance. Here's one that I'd never heard of before I read this list. Your Mama Don't Dance. I want to watch at least 30 seconds of that show. because okay, I don't know if that's sinful or not, but I, I want to see that. Uh, one was called Who Wants to Marry My Dad? How about this title? Wife, Mom, Bounty Hunter. It's not Cat the Bounty Hunter. I don't know what the situation is there, but Tommy Lee goes to college. Probably wouldn't recommend that one. Here's one for you. This is my favorite title out of the ones that I saw here. America's Most Smartest Model. <laughs> if you're laughing right now, you're probably not qualified to be on the show. <laughs> but we all want attention, don't we? 
and, and people get their moments of fame. Or, and maybe for us, we're not like so like we got to put it out there for all of America or all the country, all the world to see. But we want our office to notice, our parents, people in our family, whatever it is. And we make it about us. The reality is that many of us, most of us perhaps, hope that there's something more. Especially once you get that moment. That's why 30 million people bought Rick Warren's book. At least 30 million people bought the book, last I had heard, Purpose Driven Life. This, one of the central truths of it is it's not about you. It doesn't even make sense that people would buy that book based on the narcissistic, self-centered culture that we have. Why would you write a book that says it's not about you and then it's one of the most popular selling books of all time? It's because we want there to be more. And the truth is there is. That's what Peter learns in this passage. You go back in this passage with me and look at it. Here's Peter. He's been being prepared in Samaria, the walls are coming down. As there's a, a hated, talk about a hated people group, the Samaritans. They're so hated. John talks about it in John chapter 4, how hated the Samaritans are. They're not even Jew. They're not Gentile. They're like half-breed, non-identity people. They're despised. And then God does a work. He saves them, and he brings Peter to validate the work. And he's breaking down the walls in Peter's life, too. And then he takes them in the passage we saw recently where he goes and he stays with a tanner. A tanner is somebody who'd have to live outside the city because their business is so dirty and they'd be unclean, wouldn't be allowed to go to the temple. And if you went to their house, you wouldn't either. But then Peter goes there. And then he has this vision that we saw last week, which is confusing. Peter's probably just as confused as we would be just reading through this passage of what's happening here? What are you doing? Why is this here? And why is this happening? And he's following God's leading, though. And he ends up following these three men that come to his house on a one-day journey or just over a day journey. And I wonder what they talked about because he's with Gentiles and he's a Jew. And I wonder what the conversations were like. And he gets to this house of this guy Cornelius. Look at it in verse 24. It says, The following day, so after he's traveling with these people, an overnight journey, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. Now this says something about Cornelius, by the way. Because here's a guy, he's like an evangelist before he's even a Christian. He's inviting his family over. He's inviting all the people he cares about. These intimate relationships, what's described here, all these friends over. Now think about it. If you had a vision from God and you weren't even a Christian, angel shows up, says God's going to do something, maybe you believe it enough to actually follow through. Maybe you think you had a bad dream or who knows what you might be thinking in those moments. He's so confident that God's going to keep his promise that he invites his friends over to see. And he invites his family there. And Peter shows up, and he doesn't know what to expect. He hasn't heard about this Cornelius guy yet. He says, as Peter entered the house, verse 25, as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet in reverence. And so he comes into contact with this Gentile, and the guy falls down and starts worshiping him. And Peter made him get up, stand up. I'm, I'm only a man myself. Now maybe Cornelius had heard this guy raises the dead. This guy gives people the ability to walk that weren't able to walk. He does all kinds of miracles. He's the guy of this church, this movement that's been happening. Well, Peter, he knows it's not about him. He says, get up, I'm just a guy. You don't worship me. We see this in Scripture even where the Apostle John falls down to worship an angel in the book of Revelation and the angel says, no, no, I'm created for his glory. Don't worship me. And so many times we worship the creation. Peter tells him not to do this and starts talking with him. We don't know what that conversation is, but they went inside his house and he found a large gathering of people and he said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law, the Jewish law, for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. And you can just pause right there. And it's interesting that he says to them, you're well aware about our law, right? Like, you know how much Jews hate Gentiles because Jews viewed themselves as superior to Gentiles. A couple weeks ago, I told you uh, the, the custom that they had, the rule that they had, which was if a, a Jewish midwife saw a Gentile woman giving birth, she couldn't help. Because if she did, she'd be propagating Gentile scum. 
We don't want any more of these people populating our earth, and so don't, maybe that baby will die, was the view. If you went into a Gentile country and you were walking, because that was oftentimes a popular form of transportation, and your sandals had Gentile dirt on them, you had to clean them off before you came back into Israel because it was corrupt. It was defiled dirt. If you bought cooking utensils from a Gentile, you had to sterilize them before you could cook your food. It's like secondhand, perhaps, contain, uh, contamination. It's like they had cooties. And so he says to them this statement, to the Gentiles, you're well aware why would they be well aware? It's not their law. It's not their rule. They're well aware because they know what it's like to be discriminated against. They know what it's like to be treated like a kid on the playground who has cooties. Not only can you not go around them, don't touch anything they touch. Don't be by anything that they're by. They know what it's like to receive a disapproving look and they haven't even said a word just because of their race. He says, you're well aware of how we're supposed to act with you And so imagine what relief there is when he says the next statement. But God, those are key words in scripture anytime you see them. But God has shown me, and he's learning it right now in this moment, that I should not call any man impure or unclean. That whole vision with the buzzards and the snakes and snails, that wasn't about just food. I shouldn't call any any of God's creation that he's made, I shouldn't call it impure or unclean. Who am I? I have the same problem that you have, and that I have sin, and it separates me from God, and there's only one way to fix it. It's the same Savior, Jesus Christ. Who am I to be better than you, is what he's saying to them. And then he says, so when I was sent for, whether it's Cornelius sending the guys or God prompting my spirit, when I was sent for, without raising any objection, I came. But can I ask, why did you send for me? Why am I here? And so here you have Peter. He's in a situation many of us have found ourselves in. I believe I'm where God wants me to be. I mean, you're not outwardly rebelling against God, at least if you're out of some situation that he wants you to be in. It's not because you tried. You're you're trying to do what God wants you to do. And you're not trying to thwart his plan or run from him or rebel against him. But you still ask yourself, what am I doing here? Whether it's living in this city, whether it's doing your job, whether it's in certain relationships, physical condition, financial condition, whatever your situation, your circumstances are, You ever feel like, God, I believe you want me here, and you want me here for a reason, but like my friend who was in the car accident, what's the reason? Let me tell you something, God has a reason. Now you have an enemy who wants to stop you from fulfilling that reason, from living out that reason, from being a part of that reason. The scriptures say that he is like a roaring lion, he seeks to devour you. And John, uh, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. And many times we don't think about him when we're doing our errands and we're running around and we're distracted and we're doing different stuff. But he wants to ruin your life. I got a friend, her name is Jenny Allen. She wrote a book called Anything. In it, she mentions uh, a talk that was given by a pastor who had invested in her life and her husband's life. His name is Tommy Nelson. And the name of the talk was this If I Were the Devil. That's an intriguing title. If I Were the Devil. And he goes on to talk about how he would destroy someone's life if he were the devil, knowing what he knows about scripture. He's an older pastor, been studying the scripture for a long time. I want to read you an excerpt that she shared in the book of this talk. If you know Tommy Nelson's got this deep Texas voice, I won't try to simulate that. But I'll read you what he says in his talk. He says, if I was the devil, I'd tell you what I'd do. I'd try to deceive you and get you into error. I'd get you off base. And if you still stay true, I'd try to disqualify you. I'd get you immoral. I'd get you where no one would believe what came out of your mouth. I'd make you a tabloid where nobody would believe you. I'd remove your confidence until you were afraid to speak because your life was such a shamble. I'd get you into sin. 
I'd prowl like a roaring lion to devour you morally. And if I couldn't do that, I'd try to make you successful. And I would distract you if I couldn't disqualify you. I'd get you busy. I'd get you so distracted to the gospel that no longer would your prayers be about holiness and souls. They would only be about the bottom line in your business. I'd get you materialistic and no longer concerned about your sp- the spiritual nature of life. If I couldn't do that, I'd divide you. If I couldn't divide you, I've almost lost you. You know what I'd do then? I'd discourage you. And then if I couldn't discourage you, I'd try death. I'd try my best to kill you. You know why? Because then you're dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. That's what I'd do to take you out. That's real. That's not just what Pastor Nelson would do. Those strategies are what we see throughout Scripture. Try sin and immorality. If I could get you to go to ultimate self-indulgence to the point where you make you a public spectacle and you lose all credibility with your hypocrisy. But if not that, then success and materialism and discouragement and death. Don't just steal, kill, and destroy you. Do you know what? If you go through and you start looking at that statement by him, what all those things have in common with one another, they all have us living life based on us. Whether it's materialism, whether it's the bottom line in our business, whether it's discouraged because we're looking at the circumstances, now those circumstances impact us, they're not about God's glory, of course. Whether it's, uh, we're looking at uh, the more immorality that's before us and it's so appealing, more appealing to us than God. It's all those things that we want for us. We make it all about us. You know what the truth is? It's not about you. This story is not about you. This story here is not about Peter and it's not about Cornelius. And you see it in those verses, verses 30 through 33, when Cornelius gives the answer here and he tells Peter, says, why, why am I here? May I ask why you sent for me? He didn't say, because well, you're so amazing, Peter. Because I wanted to get here. It wasn't Peter's plan to go to Cornelius' house. It wasn't Cornelius trying to manipulate things to get Peter to his house. The reason why this vision is shared three times in 33 verses is being repeated and emphasized for a reason. It's to show God's divine leading. It's all about God. This story is not about Peter. It's not about Cornelius. You can look at other stories throughout the Bible. You can go through this whole book. And a lot of times we'll look at stories and we'll talk about characters. And there's even books written, you know, character studies of Bible characters. And we can learn stuff from that. And that's great. But this whole book's not about Moses. It's not about Abraham. It's not about David. It's not about any of those characters. It's about God. It's God's redemptive story all the way through. You go to a story of Moses and Pharaoh, and we can look at the struggles of his faith, the failures of Moses' life. We can learn about things, but it's all ultimately about God. That story, by the way, is about how God's more powerful than anyone on earth. Pharaoh. In fact, God's more powerful than creation itself. Look at the plagues. You look at a story like Joseph. It takes up the majority, more than any other story in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. And you can see it. And it says things like, Joseph is handsome. Joseph's faithful. Uh, You see the circumstances. You can tell his talent when you look at the, the passage. But you know what it's all about? It's all about God's sovereignty in all those circumstances. When man intended to harm me. God intended it for good. Summarize the whole story. It's all about God. You go to the New Testament, you read passages. There's a situation in John chapter 9 where there's men that are arguing about why is this guy blind? Is it because of his sin or maybe it's because of his parents' sin, but it's certainly about us, right? And then Jesus steps in and he says, it's not about any of that stuff. It's for God's glory. And that's the truth with your story and my story. This isn't about Peter. It's not about Cornelius. None of these Bible stories are about any of these characters and your story is not about you. My story is not about me. It's about God and it's for his glory. And sometimes you see characters in the scripture, they understand this. You see John the Baptist, 
There's a guy I was just looking at it before the service started, and his disciples come to him and say, that guy that was with you, he's baptizing more people than you are now. Because there was a time when John the Baptist was real popular, and people came to him, are you Elijah, are you the Christ? What's going on? People are coming out into the desert to hear him from all over the place. And all of a sudden, his crowds start to dwindle. And then he says in John chapter 3 and verse 30, he must become greater, I must become less. He said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not from heaven. I don't speak of those things. I'm from earth. I'm pointing to those things. There's a guy who got it. It wasn't about him. He must increase. I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. And that's the reality in all of our lives. What needs to happen is that Jesus needs to become supreme, become central in our lives. Because here's the deal. We talk about why are we here and we want to experience life. Let me tell you this. The more you make life about you, the less you experience genuine life. We don't have these verses, but I'll give you my biblical basis for that statement. The more you make life about you, the less you experience life. What is life? Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that you could have life, you could have it abundantly. Then John chapter 14, verse 6, because John chapter 10, he said that. John chapter 14, he says, I am the life. That you'd have me. The more we make life about us, the less we experience genuine life, which is Jesus Christ. We must decrease, he must increase for us to experience the real reason why we were created, why we're here. That's why people want to buy that book, Purpose Driven Life. It's not about you because when we're living all about us, we realize how unsatisfying it is. And we want more. And he's the more. But the reality is, we don't really want him. And if you start looking at how we really live our lives, and I'm talking about all of us, I'm not pointing out any specific people group here, we make life about us. That's what we're passionate about. It's about us. Whatever you're passionate about is the thing that you'll go after. You, you'll, you, people will go all out for stuff that we're passionate about. We think about the things we're passionate about. We use our resources, our time, our talents, all that stuff towards the things we're passionate about. And we say that it's about God, but think about this. We come in sometimes for worship, and we'll be singing about the creator of the universe. How long is this going to go? This song's repeat that chorus a couple too many times. I sure hope when the guy stands up in a little bit, whoever it is, that he says something that helps me with my own self-indulgent goals in life. What a terrible message for you to come to today, if that was your plan, by the way. <laughs> are, are we really passionate about God? I know we know we're supposed to be, but we'll see what we're passionate about. It comes out in our lives. I, I, saw, I was given a story this week by our, our youth pastor, Josh Tovey. He's a soccer fan. I like real football, <laughs> where they don't use their feet, um, American football. And uh, so he, uh, he was telling me about um, the soccer situation, which seemed so ridiculous to me when I first heard the story. Happened in Brazil this past week. Maybe you saw it was on Fox News. Uh, there was a situation, there was a controversial call in the game on the pitch. And uh, while they were having this game, the, the player who had the call against him and the referee got in an argument with each other, ended up in an actual physical fight. The goalie, or the, uh, the, the referee, pulled a knife out of his pocket, a small knife, stabbed the player. They took the guy away in an ambulance. He died on the way to the hospital. Family, friends, and different people that were real passionate about this game rushed to the field, kidnapped the referee, stoned him to death, tore his body apart, brought his head back on a stake, and posted it in the middle of the soccer stadium field. When Josh told me that story the first time, I goes, over a game? A game? Especially for me as an American, I don't care about soccer, right? What's soccer games? A game? Then it dawned on me when I got back into my office after he had shared that with me. Oh, no, no, no. They, that was their God that was being messed with. That's why they were so upset. And so you can take out soccer, insert other things that are important to us. I heard a, another pastor, James McDonald, say uh, recently, the reason why people get uptight at church when you talk about money is because you're talking about their God. They don't want you messing with their God. 
And he said, knock it over. Just talk about it. So take out soccer, insert money. If I told you a story just now about someone who killed like that over money, you wouldn't be as shocked. Because we hear about those kinds of things. You can take out soccer, take out money, insert sex, insert power, insert whatever self-indulgent goal, whatever thing that we make ultimate in our lives, and guess what? We're not as shocked. Especially as it gets closer and closer to our God, which is usually us. And so we'll do extreme things for the things that we're passionate about. Not saying that we should kill for this, but we should die to ourselves. Many of us will give our lives for the thing that we're most passionate about, whatever that is, approval from another person, job goals, to get a boat, whatever, whatever thing that we make ultimate in our lives. That's our God. And do you know what God says in Isaiah chapter 42? He says that he is the Lord. That's his name. I will not give my glory to another. All my praise to idols. And that means not to you and not to me too. Idol, all of the creation, the created things, like when Cornelius comes to bow down before Peter, I'm not giving it to you. And so what has to happen? How do we do what John the Baptist is saying? I must decrease, he must increase. Well, let me tell you, the answer's not love materialism less, love whatever sin less, love soccer less, love money less, whatever the things you fill in the gaps with are. The answer is not that. It's love Jesus Christ more. And what ha- the only way that happens is you have to behold him, you have to see him, you have to understand the love that he has for you. Listen, he died a more gruesome death than that soccer referee did, and he did it voluntarily. The scriptures say that no one took his life, that he laid his life down, and he did it for you and for me. That he was very, he, the very reason why he was sent was love, his love for you and his love for me. And you go through the scriptures and you start looking at some of these characters, and you see the people that are really willing to give it all for God, that will lay their life down for God. Do you know what they have in common? They've had an encounter with the living God. He's transformed their life, and they understand his love for them. The love we sang about, that his love remains, you know, we can't outrun it, and all that stuff that we've talked about with his love. They really know that. Experientially, they know that love. You see a guy like David in Psalm 63.3 says, your love is better than my life. So guess what? I'd lay my life down for your love. So my lips will praise you. I'm passionate about you. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about Christ's love. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we're convic- convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. We shall all die to ourselves. Verse 15 says this. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Peter, it's not about you. Me, you, it's not about us. And then verse 33, Cornelius has said to him, we're here to listen to what God commanded you to tell us. So you're here for God's glory, Peter, and you've got a message. It's God's story. It's the gospel. See, we're here for God's glory. We're also here for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter was commanded to tell. We're here for the sake of the gospel. That's our second point. Peter knew that. It's not like when he was told this in verse 33. uh, So I sent for you immediately and it was good for you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Real interesting. You can read verses 1 through 33 and nowhere do you find a statement where it says God told Peter to say this to Cornelius. And so you put yourself in Peter's situation, trying to imagine being him. If someone said to you, I'm here to hear the message God told you to tell me. Oh man, what was that message? I better call some of my friends because maybe I miss it. I need to seek multitude of godly counsel. I'll pray about this. Give me a seance and hopefully God shows up and gives me some special revelation. Peter didn't need any of that stuff. 
He knows he's standing before a guy who's not a believer. What's he supposed to do? Tell him the gospel. I mean, Jesus couldn't have been more clear about this <laughs> before he left earth. Matthew chapter 28, he says it. Go, make disciples of all nations. Guess what? That means Gentiles too. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I commanded you. Oh, that wasn't clear. All right, let's say it another way. Mark. Mark, he says it like this. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world, preach the good news to all of creation. It's all people, everyone. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. It'll be for all people. It's Gentile people, Jewish people, white people, black people, rich people, poor people, all people. That's not what stops it. You've already been commanded, Peter. That's not clear. All right, Luke is really clear. <laughs> Luke says, he told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day. That's the gospel. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So we started in Jerusalem, then kind of going about, and Peter, do you, do you get it? Do you know what you're supposed to say? Kind of like a more relational tone. Okay, John said it like this. In John uh, chapter 20, verse 21, he said, just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Just like my father, relational language, sent me, and we've been in a relationship, I want to send you out. In case that wasn't clear, Jesus says it one more time, right before he goes into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. Later, Paul says this. You get people that they don't know, how are they going to know unless someone tells them? They're not just going to figure this thing out. Somebody's got to share the gospel with them. It's commanded to us. John Piper says it like this in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You see, there's not going to be any missions in heaven. There's not going to be any evangelism in heaven. But there's going to be a lot of worship. And here he is before this guy who's not a worshiper of the true living God who doesn't realize that his life is for the glory of God and how could it ever be for the sake of the gospel because he doesn't even know the gospel. He says, I'm here to hear. That's why non-believers are here, by the way, is to hear the gospel. And why believers are here is then to share through life and word the gospel. And what Peter does in the next part of this passage is he gives us a crash course basically on how to share the gospel. Look at verse 34. So then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. He's connecting with these people. He's already told them this. He's learned that there's no one that's unclean or impure. He's already broken down those barriers, but he's going to share the gospel now. He says, I, I now realize the gospel's for everybody. It's for me, and the same thing that's for me is for you. Verse 35 says, but God accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Is he saying that everyone who's sincere then gets to heaven? Not at all. If he was saying that, then why in verses 36 through 48 is he going to tell them all about Jesus Christ? He wouldn't need to. They're already all set. Their fear of God is a reverence that they have for God. They're acknowledging that God's not like us. He's not our buddy. He's not our pal. He's different. He created. He's authoritative. He is holy. And he's in control. And so he's saying they fear him and they do what's right. You know, it's right to submit to Christ, which is what he tells them about next. You know the message. You've heard about this. It's not like it's a secret what Jesus Christ did. You know the message that God sent to people, the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all and the gospel is really a message of peace because the reality is that we're at war with God. And when he says peace here, he's not talking about like an inner tranquility. He's not just talking about like calm you down. Peace is that you're actually rebelling against God just like Adam did in the garden when he decided to treasure something else, his own plan for life, the way that he thought was better over God. What happens then is you've declared war on God. You're either for him or you're against him. And we've all gone our own way. We've all done our own thing. We've all sinned. So everybody's against him. But the gospel is a message of how he made reconciliation, peace possible. And that's what the rest of this is about. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, the baptism of, that John preached, how God anointed Jesus Christ, and that happened at his baptism, with the Holy Spirit, 
and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with them. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, where it says that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. This is the gospel. You can't have the gospel without the cross. He's presented the problem. The problem is we have an unsolvable problem. We've sinned against God. No amount of good deeds, no amount of going to church, no amount of anything else is ever going to solve that problem. It's an unsolvable problem for us because we're under a curse. But Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross on this tree, he took that curse for us. So you can't share the gospel without the cross. That's where he pays the penalty. And then he goes on, and he says, he dies on this tree, and then there's those words again, verse 40, but God, God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He defeated death. He overcame the curse. The curse has been reversed as a result of the death of Jesus Christ. Now peace is made possible. So now there's some hope here in this message. And he goes on to talk about how the resurrection is not just some myth, it's not some fantasy that they had, this wasn't a ghost, he was seen, not by all people, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us there were 500 witnesses, he was seen not by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us, who ate and drank with him after he had risen from the dead. And so he's talking about this was real, it wasn't a ghost, had a real stomach, ate food, digested the food. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he's the one whom God appointed as judge. Oh, we don't like that. We like Redeemer and Reconciler and Forgiver and any other title we want to talk about is grace and love and mercy, but he's also a judge. And he's not just judging us when we die, he's judging us now. He's judge of the living and the dead. But then he says this, verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that everyone, that's a key word if you want to underline it, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him, who stops trusting in their good works, who stops trusting in church attendance, who stops trusting in hopefully it'll all work out in the end, who stops trusting in whatever it is that they're trusting in, dream, fantasy, opinion they made up, some other religion, who places their faith in Jesus Christ is forgiven. But he's judge. Well, he's either judge or he's redeemer. The picture that's given here is that you're on trial before God. He is the judge. And if your case is anything about you, you're toast. But if it's based on your belief in Jesus Christ and what he's done, then the judge actually becomes your advocate. That he speaks on your behalf because he's forgiven you for everyone. Doesn't matter your circumstances, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter anything that you've done in the past, you can't outrun his love. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. And then the craziest thing happens the next part of this passage. While Peter was still speaking these words, so this is the sermon that never ends. He doesn't give a closing verse. He doesn't give an illustration, drive the point home in some way, some application. While he's still speaking, these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. So it's like this. They hear about their sin. They hear about Jesus Christ dying to pay for that sin. And then they realize there's a gift being offered to everyone who believes. And it was like, as Peter said those words, everyone who believes receives forgiveness. It was like they said in their hearts, I believe. I believe. I believe. And the Holy Spirit came, and they were transformed, brought into the kingdom. The Holy Spirit comes on them. And then Peter had brought some friends with him. And this is the circumcised believers. There's six of them. We'll find out next week. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished. They were literally beside themselves. 
that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. What we're seeing here is the same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost with Jewish people, and now it's happening here with the Gentiles as well, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God, doing the same thing that we saw in Acts chapter 2. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? The baptism is an outward symbolism of what's taken place in our lives, that we've received the Holy Spirit, that, that Christ is in our lives, we've surrendered to him, we died to our old way of life, we're now living for Christ. He says, can anyone stop them from being baptized with water? Is there any reason why we wouldn't? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And you've already heard in this service, we're going to be baptized on August 4th. If you haven't been baptized, your next step of obedience is to get baptized. If you trust Christ today, or if you've trusted Christ any time in the past before now, and you haven't been baptized, it's letting the world know you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Here what we have is, in this passage of Scripture is an illustration of Matthew chapter uh, 28, verses 19 and 20. Peter went where he was supposed to go to Cornelius' house. Go, make disciples of all nations, everywhere I send you. You know what? God sends each one of us in a different place. He sends you places he doesn't send me. He sends me places he doesn't send you. And that's his plan to get the gospel, where he wants to get the gospel. Where plan A, there's no plan B. He says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When they place their faith in Jesus, they become a worshiper of Christ, and you baptize them. Let the whole world know. Then teach them, and Peter, he stays here. He says, stay with us for a few more days. We assume that he then taught them how to grow in their relationship with Christ. He taught them what he knew that would be helpful for them for a few days so that they could continue on as the Gentile church. That's his plan. You have to place your faith in Jesus Christ, and you ask yourself the question, why am I here? You're here so you can hear the message that Peter just preached, that God loves you, that he died for you, and he had to. Because otherwise, you pay for your sins for eternity. That's a big deal. But he loves you so much that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. And that's why you're here, so you can receive that forgiveness. That's why you're hearing these words at this moment, so you can receive that forgiveness. The question is, do you believe in him? Are you willing to place your trust in not your works and not going to church and not the fact that you showed up here today or you're watching online or whatever it is, but what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross when he voluntarily laid his life down for you so that you could be reconciled to God and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's why you're here. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe you're here, you've gotten distracted, you've gotten discouraged, you've gotten involved with uh, materialism, self-indulgence, life's about the bottom line, whatever that means for you because you can fill in the blank whether you own a business or whether you're working for a company or whether you're just trying to plan for some self-indulgent goal. Don't waste your life. Life is that you would know Jesus Christ, that he would increase, that you would decrease, that it would be all about his glory for the sake of the gospel. Your plan A, there's no plan B. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we cannot get away from your love as long as we're here on earth and as long as we have breath, that you're in pursuit of us, that you came after us. We know that you sent your son, like you say in Luke 19.10, to seek and save the lost. And at one point, each one of us was lost. There are some that might be lost that are hearing these words right now. And I pray you'd grab a hold of them and you'd bring them into your family. And, and Father, there are some of us that have been saved but we're floundering. I'm trying to figure out what am I supposed to be doing and, and you've made it so crystal clear. God, don't let us miss it. Make us either be obedient 
and come in and walk in step with you and live for your glory and for your kingdom or so clear in our own hearts that we're outright rebelling against you that we're literally smacking you in the face in disobedience. It's in Jesus' name I pray.